So welcome. This is a six-part series called The World of Kabbalah. And many people hear this word. Many people are uh, reading about Kabbalah. When I say this word, Kabbalah, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Anybody? Lekabel in Hebrew. Here you go. There is, you know, Miriam is looking right at the root, pun intended. Uh, word Kabbalah comes from the word Lekabel in Hebrew means to receive. So what does that mean? To get. To get. So generally, colloquially, Kabbalah is usually known as mysticism. So now let's figure it out. Stephanie says that Kabbalah is mysticism. Miriam says that Kabbalah is something which is received. How do you reconcile these two ideas? Well, I'm a true rabbi. I'll tell you, you're right and you're right. And the reason is because Kabbalah is Jewish mystical tradition. There's only one difficulty. If I want to study physics, I need to observe the world around me or if I'm Isaac Newton, I need to be sitting under a tree and an apple is going to fall on my head. And I will figure things out. We don't have such a perception of the mystical spheres as we do of the physical world. And this is why there's no way for me to figure it out just by observing things around me. This is why the only thing I can rely on is what I have received the information I've received from others. This is why it's called Kabbalah, Le Kabel, and this is why it's true. It is a mystical teaching of the Torah. Kabbalah is a part of a Torah, just like a, a Jewish law is a part of a Torah, Halakha, and there are other parts of written Torah, and oral Torah, Mishnah, Gemara, Tanakh. Kabbalah is a part of the Torah. And in this class, we're going to, first of all, try to understand. We're going to, one second. Hmm, what's going on over here? Technology doesn't like us today? Oh, here you go. We're going to first... We're going we're gonna to first try to find out what Kabbalah is and, first of all, what is it? Second of all, what are its central teachings? We know that we Jews are called the people of the book. We have a lot of books. And every area of the Torah has its own literature, has its own volumes. We're going to be seeing what are these books. Then we're going to be learning about terminology of Kabbalah. And this is why those textbooks can be useful. And if you don't have textbook, then these notepads are going to come very useful because you will be writing things down. 
And here's the most important part. How are these teachings relevant to my everyday life? And I will tell you, this is a key point, or my, I should say probably the key point. Because Kabbalah is probably the only mystical tradition in the world, and our planet has many different mystical traditions in various cultures, that insist that it itself is not the goal. It is only, according to Kabbalah itself, a tool for something else. In other words, in most of other traditions, mysticism is viewed as something aloof, something great, something you need to look up to and aspire to, and mysticism is a goal, an end in itself. In the Jewish tradition, Kabbalah is only a tool. What is the tool for? We're going to be speaking the entire time about two things, evolution and devolution. Evolution means progress, growth. Kabbalah is a tool for our growth. There is a story about a great uh, Hasidic Jew, a very pious Jew, who once came to Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. And as it usually happens, the Rebbe was questioning him about what he does, and about his life, and about his studies, and about his spiritual well-being. And he asks him, when you wake up in the morning, what is the first thing you are doing? He says, what do you mean, what is the first thing I'm doing? The first thing I'm doing is I'm pondering about the greatness of God. He says, wow, that's, that's terrific. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, what do you do afterwards? He says, then I prepare myself for services. And again, I meditate about God. And then, and then during prayers, I'm meditating about spirituality and about great spiritual worlds. And Rabbi Rashab asked him, and then afterwards, and afterwards I go to study Torah. And again, I study about the greatness of God. Rabbi Rashab was listening to him. And this Jew was obviously expecting to get a compliment from his Rebbe, saying, wow, you are spending your entire day dwelling in spiritual spheres. Rabbi Rashab asked him, well, I understand that you spend all this time meditating about God. I want to know when are you meditating about yourself. In other words, he asked him, I understand you are dealing with these very lofty ideas, but when are you preoccupying yourself with applying them in your day-to-day -day life? As a matter of fact, the story has it as, that when this Hasidic Jew heard this, he fainted because he understood that the Rebbe was 100% right, and he was missing the entire point. So this is the main idea. We are going to be talking about how Kabbalah is uh, relating to us. And now, besides for that, we are also 
going to be talking, uh, I said about two things, evolution and devolution. Evolution I explained. We need to evolve. We need to progress. We need to apply these ideas to our daily, daily life. What, what devolution are we talking about? Well, we know that God created this world. This is how the Torah starts. God created this world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that. Well, God's energy had to devolve to us. God had to make room for us. And the way God was doing it is specifically described in Kabbalah. And this is what we are going to be studying. Now, how can we possibly understand God? The entire Jewish tradition is only talking about God being unlimited and God being uncomprehensible. Uncom uh, so how do we understand God? You know, the Torah itself gives us an answer. It says that we people, humans, are created in God's image. What does it mean? I, I mean, I know some people who look at the mirror and say that they are, that they are a deity, that they are God. You know, this, this, uh, this guy comes uh, to a divorce court and he says, I want to divorce my wife on religious grounds. I said, why, why is it, asked the judge? Because she thinks she's God and I disagree. So, so, so we, we know there are some people who think that they are God or at, at least something close to it. This is not what Torah means. The way it says God fills this world is the way our soul fills our body. So if we will understand the relationship between our soul and our body, we will understand the relationship between God and this world. And by studying ourselves, we can get a glimpse of what is going on in the spiritual realms. Here are some pages from Kabbalistic books. Any one of you have seen these diagrams before? This is the famous diagram of Sephirot, 10th Sephirot. We're going to be studying them today. I mean, not today, during this, this course. And this is a page from a book of Rabbi Moshe Cardavero, Pardasimonium. And this is a diagram of Olamot worlds. And this is a page from Rabbi Shaptai Halevi Horowitz's book, Shafatal. Kabbalists were very cautious with making those diagrams. They did not want to put all these concepts into paper most of the time and into an image for sure not. Do you know why? Because when we are talking about spiritual worlds, everything that we can draw is only metaphor. And we understand that we cannot, underst we, uh, we cannot understand it literally. You all know Amelia Bedelia, right? She was told to put out lights, and she took light bulbs and put them outside. And she was told to dust a uh, shelf, and she took dust and put it on the shelf. 
and dress up chicken. She took some clothes on, and, and put it on a chicken. Well, when we read books of Kabbalah, we have a danger of becoming Amelia Bedelia. Because we see those attributes of God, and we could say, wow, so God is just like me. You know, I get hungry, God is also hungry. I scratch my nose, God also scratches his nose. And then we see those diagrams, we might understand them literally. This is why before we begin, we need to say that this is not literal. This is a metaphor. And one of the most important ideas that we are going to be discussing today is the concept of something being higher and lower. When I say something is higher, it usually means physically, in size, and lower in size also. In Kabbalah, higher and lower is always heard, is always being used. This concept of higher and lower, but it means something else. What is high in Kabbalah? High in Kabbalah? What is it? Closer to God, closer to source, 100%. So higher worlds means worlds which are closer to their source. Uh, and then we mentioned a very important idea of devolution. In Hebrew, this is a term that if you have your textbooks, it is printed there. If not, you might want to write down in your notepads. In Hebrew, it's hishtal shelut. If you are using Ashkenazi, uh, sorry, Sephardic pronunciation and hishtal shelus. If you're using Ashkenazic pronunciation, literally means devolution. What does it mean? If I want to do something, I want to buy a house. I am renting now. I don't have my own home. And I decided it's time for me to buy a house. Mortgage, mortgage rate just went up. Now that means it's the right time for me to buy. <laughs> Um, and first, what does it start with? Now, we all like pretending that we are very logical. We don't do things because we think it is the right thing. We fool ourselves by explaining away our desires. Everything starts with a desire, and desire starts with pleasure. What gives me pleasure? Sleeping outdoors doesn't give me pleasure. Sorry, I tried, didn't work. So I need a house. Renting a house gives me, obviously, more pleasure than sleeping outside, but it's still, it's not mine. I want to change things. I want to move this wall. I want to repaint that wall. I want to have different layout. I cannot do it if it's not my house. I want to have my own house. Having a place to live gives person a pleasure. Everything what we do starts with pleasure. We do whatever gives us pleasure. Now, sometimes we don't get immediate pleasure from something. It's called delayed, delayed gratification, something that we need to teach our kids. And you all know this 
trick that you do with kids. You, you tell a kid, here's a candy. If you'll eat it today, I'm not going to give you anything tomorrow. But if you'll save it for tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to give you another one. You'll have two. And at different ages, children respond differently. At some age, children will not even think twice. They'll just eat the candy. Why? Because they want to. They don't understand that they could get two tomorrow. But at one point, they will realize, hey, you know what? Maybe I should save it up because tomorrow I'll get double. That's called delay gratification, but it's still gratification. It's still pleasure. So everything starts with pleasure. This is the first step. Then pleasure is translated into a desire. Pleasure is something abstract. Pleasure is a feeling. Desire is something much more concrete. I actually have a will for something specific. Then comes logic. I need to justify it for myself. I need to explain it to myself. It's a good investment. Um, it's, a, it's a good asset. If you read books on the economy, they'll tell you that your house is not an asset. It's a liability, but people still call it an asset. And it's, a, and, and it's an investment. And, and uh, rates will go even higher up, so I better buy a house now. Everything, everything what you will want to know, logically, this is where this process is taking place. Then I get into nitty-gritty. I'm getting into details. Hmm, where am I buying a house? Is it going to be a rancher? Is it going to be a colonial? Is it going to be a house somewhere in a busy street or in the woods? Do I live in a cul-de-sac? And then we think of a plan. Okay, now let's figure it out. How much can I afford? Which areas do I need to live in? The, the, the nitty-gritty. Then I need to consult with people usually, or even if I'm not consulting, I usually need to have somebody to speak it over with. And the last, last bit is action. This is when I hire a realtor, and I get pre-approved for mortgage, and then I find my house and sign a dotted line, and 30 days later, I have a closing. Now, this is devolution of my pleasure. Start with pleasure. The highest thing I have is always pleasure. People do crazy things for pleasure. Pleasure is never rational. Pleasure runs this world. I go to work and I earn money. Why? Because with this money I can get things that give me pleasure. I go on vacation. Why? Because it gives me pleasure. I hang around with my friends. Why? Because I get pleasure from it. And so on and so forth. I eat food that I like. Why? Because it gives me pleasure. Pleasure is the pinnacle of everything. And then there is a devolution till the final stage. And as we said, in Hebrew, it is called hishtal shelut. So what is Kabbalah? Kabbalah is a sophisticated exploration of order of devolution.
we are studying how God decided to create this world. Why? It says that God wanted to create this world. Why did God want to create this world? Do you know why? Why? But why? But why does he want us to do mitzvahs? But why do you want to have a receiver? So the answer is, we just said, pleasure is not logical. We don't know why God wants to do what he wants to do, and we don't know why we want to do what we want to do. Why is it that I derive pleasure from, from sauna? I don't know why do I do I, I have a friend who hates sauna, and I like sauna. Why? I don't know why. That thing gives me pleasure. So if I cannot figure out why things give, give me pleasure, I for sure cannot even try to find out why things give, give God pleasure. Right, but why? There's only one reason why. There's a medrash that says that God desired to create a lowly world. That's it. It's a desire. It's a pleasure. So now we are studying how this pleasure translates into the last, the last step of, of the chain, and that's called hishtal shelus or hishtal shelut. And we have a picture here of Amelia, of Amelia Bedelia. Just to remind us that it is all a metaphor and should never be understood literally. Now, why is there a talk about devolution of godliness? Why do we even need to address it in the first place? Well. Uh, if I am alone in my room, let's say it's my living room, and I'm the only person there, I come and I sit down on the couch, I take off my shoes, my presence is taking up the entire room. I act the way I want. As soon as somebody comes in, usually my demeanor will change. Why? Because I'm not taking up the whole space anymore. And by the way, if it's a stranger, my demeanor will change even further. And now well, I will tell you something else. If my kid my son or my daughter walk into the room. My demeanor might change, but not so much. But what if somebody who I respect a lot, somebody very important walks in? I'll for sure jump up from the couch, right? Now, why is that? Because when I'm alone in the room, I'm taking up the entire room. As soon as somebody else comes in, I need to make room for this person. 
And the more important this person is, in my eyes, it's all subjective, the more room I need to make for this person. So that means that if I am alone, I'm myself, I take up every ounce of space. When I was little, my, my mother used to always complain to me that I am different from gases. The physics teaches that gas takes up all the allowed space. My mother was telling me, gas is taking up all the allowed space. You are taking up all the allowed and non-allowed space. So, so I take up all the space, allowed and not allowed. That's how I am. As soon as somebody walks in, I have to share it. I have to share this space. God wanted to create the world. For this, he had to create a space where he at least will not be revealed, where he will not be seen. It's a contraction, at least a visual contraction, perceptual contraction. Contraction means devolution. If I was taking up the entire space, I had everything I want, and now I have to contract that devolution. And by doing this, we're going to understand. We're going to learn about God and his ways. We're going to learn the background information that can help us make better choices. And we also will learn how it helps us to influence the spiritual realms, the worlds above. And here comes the first Kabbalistic chart that we are going to see during this course. Oops, sorry. There are four worlds. As a matter of fact, there are three worlds, but one of them is divided into two categories. Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya. And then the, the last word is also devolving into our realms already right here. Now, where are these terms come from and what do they mean? It is actually taken from a verse in the Torah. It says, God, God says, Ani Barati, I created, Ani Yatsarti, I formed, Af Asisi, and I made. So these three worlds are called by the verbs which are used in the book of Bereshit. But what do they mean? Beriya means creation. The first verse in the Torah says, Bereshit bara Elohim, God created. Creation. Creation of matter. Stuff. Something. Then comes Yetzirah. Yetzirah in Hebrew means formation. To form. Why? Because matter needs to have a shape. And then there is the third word, Asiyah. Asiyah means doing, function. After something has been created, after it was shaped, it needs now to be functioning. It needs to have a purpose. It needs to do something. 
These are the three worlds which are in Hebrew abbreviation called Biya. And in your textbooks, if you have them, there's more explanation about them. Biya, it's Beriya, Yitzira, Asiya, Biya. And these are the three worlds that allow us to, first of all, be what? Be self-aware. As humans, what does it mean? Uh, imagine there are uh, uh, three girls. Let's say teenage girls, young teenagers, 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl. And this 12 or 13-year-old girl, come on in, come on in, have a seat. Welcome. Imagine there is a 12 or 13-year-old girl at this age. Kids are usually just develop their sense of identity. And this girl has a typical Jewish mother. And this overbearing, typical Jewish mother, you know, this, 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 this Jewish mother is opening the window and screams to her son, Chaim, come back home. Chaim says, Mom, am I already tired? She says, no, you are already hungry. So there, there, there is a, an Israeli psychiatrist, a, a person who has lectured all over the world and wrote many books, Yerachmiel Vaknin, and he actually coined a syndrome called Jewish Mother's Syndrome. It's a real thing. So, so this girl is growing up with a typical Jewish mother. And this mother is telling her when she's tired and when she's hungry. And this mother is telling her, now it's time to go to sleep and now it's time to wake up. And the mother says, you want to go swimming today, right? And the girl looks at her and says, right, I do want to go swimming. And she goes swimming. This girl, I mean, she knows she's an independent person. Conceptually, she has this understanding. But does she have a fully developed sense of her own desires? Does she have uh, an understanding of what she specifically wants? You ask her, what do you want to be when you'll grow up? She says, my mom wants me to be a doctor. She does not have yet her sense of identity fully developed. Now, we all hope that over the time, our children do get their own sense of identity. And for every parent, this is the most difficult challenge because we need to figure out what decisions we can already allow our children to make, our children to make, which decisions we still have to keep in our own prerogative, where they can express themselves, where they cannot express themselves. A kid is coming home and says, Mom, I want to get a tattoo. Do we let them make their own decisions? The kid is only five years old. You know, chances are you'll not be happy if your five years old is going to make a tattoo. You'll tell them, wait till you are at least seven. <laughs> so, now, imagine a kid who is growing up with parents that pretty much allow them to fend for himself. This kid 
for better or for worse, probably is going to have his own sense of identity. <laughs> you will ask him what he wants to be when he'll grow up. He'll tell you what he wants to be when he is going to grow up. He probably doesn't even know what his parents want him to be when he'll grow up. He probably never spoke with his parents about it. His parents probably don't know what they want him to be when he's going to grow up. There are kids like this also, unfortunately. So this kid is going to have a very big sense of identity, very self-aware. It might be also not healthy. It might be too much for a kid to handle at that age. But this is another extreme. So now we understand that the more space parents allow for their children to take up, the more space they will take up. Now, it doesn't always work like a perfect math. Sometimes parents want the child to take more initiative and to be more proactive in his own decisions or her own decisions, and the kid is just not up to it. And sometimes it's the other way around. But in order for a kid to have some sense of identity, he needs to be allowed to do that. So we are called God's children. God is giving us space. And with this, God is therefore first creating matter. Matter is already something. It's, it's, it's stuff. It's matter. But does it have its own sense of identity? It doesn't have a shape. It's not anything specific. Then this something has a shape. Okay, that's really something much more solid. This solid object does not have a function yet. The main core identity of everything is its function. This is why, by the way, kids are always trying to figure out what I can do. That's, that's the core identity of a child. What, what can I do now? What am I going to do be, be doing in the future? Kid needs to do something to figure out what is he, what he is. So now... This, in other words, this can be explained as the progression of self-awareness for us. And self-awareness is also, in common uh, language, called ego. People with a high level of self-awareness have a very big ego. You know, this guy walks into the room, and suddenly you can feel that he wants to take up the entire space, right? He has a very big sense of self-awareness. And it could be that this person walks into a room and he sits in a corner, he doesn't even know, he doesn't bother anybody, he doesn't want to talk to anyone. People with a big ego want everything to be exactly how they want it. And a guy with a little sense of self-awareness doesn't mind when things are not the way he wants it. And very often, he might not even know how he wants it. Do you want to, do you want to go to a park or do you want to go to a museum? I don't know. Whatever you want. It's not. This person doesn't have a big sense of self-awareness. Yes, Stephanie. But with, you know, if you're looking at a parent and a child, we are asking the kids, you know, what do 
help them develop that sense of self-awareness. But with Hashem, it's like he's given us the mitzvahs. He has 613 mitzvahs. Where is the, the self-awareness? How is the self-awareness developed in us? Here you go. Very good question. So Stephanie is asking a pretty common question that is asked specifically about Judaism. I wake up in the morning and God tells me what to eat, how to eat, what to dress, how to dress, what to do, what not to do, how to tie my shoes, how to, uh, how to go about my business. Judaism seems to be suffocating people with do's and don'ts. Where is my self-expression? Does that sound like a real freedom fighter? <laughs> yes, I, I fight for independence. So what is the answer? It's a very good question. Uh, we are not talking right now about what God is telling us to do. We are not, not addressing this issue right now. We are addressing the question of whether I feel as an independent human being or not. In other words, there is a child who feels that he wants to go for a walk, but his parents tell him that he has to sit home and do homework. Okay? But the child knows that he wants to go play with his friends outside. He knows that. The example of the first child that we were bringing was a kid who doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't want anything. Whatever his parents tell him, that's what he wants. You ask him, what do you want to be when you grow up? My mom wants me to be a doctor. So this is, and this is truly what you see with younger children. They don't know yet what they want. I mean, they, they might tell you, I want an apple, or, or I don't want an apple. I want a candy, or I don't want a candy. But, but in a larger sense, they don't have yet the sense of self-awareness. We humans, just think about it. We are created by God. God made us. But at the same time, this very God allowed us to be so independent that we, e uh, that we even sometimes think that this God doesn't exist. And we are self-made. You know, the, uh, they say this multi-millionaire once said, I am a self-made millionaire and I believe in my creator. So we are, we feel so independent that we don't even think, oh, one second, maybe, maybe, somebody, maybe somebody actually made us here. We don't feel it. We need to think about it. We need to study it. We need to read about it. Then maybe we'll come to such a conclusion. But on our own, if you have a child growing up in the forest without anybody teaching him anything, will he know that he, that he is created by God, that this world came about because of God? Will he know anything from this? No, he won't. This is why it's called Kabbalah. This is what we spoke before about. Because this child growing up in the forest eventually will learn how nature works. The physical things he'll figure out if he'll be bright enough. Or over the time, humanity will figure it out. These spiritual things, we will never get it. Unless you're told. So this is, this is why, because we are not spiritually attuned, and we, God made us not spiritually attuned, specifically to allow us our own space for existence. In other words, 
The very fact that I wake up in the morning and I say, I don't want to go to a synagogue. The very fact that I say on Yom Kippur, I'm hungry, I want to eat. The very fact that I say, I don't like matzah, it gives me stomach aches. The very fact that I can think and say these things shows that I'm an independent being. Which, if God would not go through this process, would not happen. And uh, now we understand that the higher worlds in this diagram have less of self-awareness and lower worlds have more of self-awareness. Lack of self-awareness in Hebrew is called bitul. That is another term that you can write down or you will see in your textbooks, bitul, literally from Hebrew, like in modern Hebrew, levatel means to cancel. I guess you could call it self-cancellation. I don't know if there's such a word in English, but save self-abnegation. Uh, denial of identity. And this is, this is the, the term which is used as more bitul up here and less bitul up here. Now, just to have a recap, we're going to watch a video now that's going to explain to us uh, these, these, these ideas. What is the Kabbalah? It's Judaism's mystical wisdom. It discusses souls, the deeper meaning of things, and the spiritual system of the heavens. Never heard of this heavenly system? That's okay. Why don't we do what Kabbalah does best? Offer a parable to explain something abstract. You decide to build a home. Your plan actually begins with an intuition of pleasure. Deep within your subconscious, you sense the enormous pleasure of dwelling in a home that truly suits you. That spark of pleasure that invades your brain's desire center. I want a home, you tell yourself. Immediately, your intellect grabs the wheel. You logically justify your desire and analyze the possibilities. Your emotions chime in. How do I feel about this location? Am I comfortable with high windows? You carefully rethink your plan, you discuss it with friends, and are finally ready for action. Sign, build, move. What's all that got to do with heaven? The Kabbalah reveals that when God decided to create the physical world, God first created an entire spiritual system that parallels the experience we've just described. In this first video, we'll take a quick look at the final three stages of this system. In each subsequent video, we will climb one level higher as we explore this supernal chain of command. The mystical work titled The Zohar discusses the existence of three spiritual worlds that precede our own. Their names are Berea, Yetzirah, and Asiya. 
These worlds are inhabited by angels and souls, souls before they descend to earth, and those who have passed away and flourish in the afterlife. In Hebrew, the word Berea means to create something from nothing at all. So in the spiritual world of Berea, for the first time in the entire system, things exist that are aware of their own existence. They feel independent, outside of God. That's amazing, because nothing is independent of God. But in Berea, God hides His presence to enable entities to emerge with a sense of self. Nevertheless, the angels and souls that inhabit Berea feel tremendously close to God and are completely focused on God. Everything here is fragile, extremely close to losing its identity and being blissfully overwhelmed by proximity to God. So, God took it one step further and created the spiritual world of Yetzirah, which means to give shape to something. This is where the sense of independence from God truly begins to take shape. Here, God hides His presence to a far greater degree, which allows the spiritual inhabitants of Yetzirah to develop greater self-awareness. That said, God is still sensed in the spiritual place. And so, God made Asiya, which in Hebrew implies a complete and final product. From its perspective, the sense of independence from God is complete. Asiya has two linked layers. Its top layer consists of spiritual beings, and in its lower layer is our physical universe, the tangible, material world we know so well, where we struggle to relate to the divine force that continuously creates us. The good news? Even as we reside in the physical Asiya, our souls keep a connection with those higher worlds from which they emanate. The spiritual Asiya helps us peer beyond the physical. Yetzirah empowers us to suspend our self-focus long enough to sense God's presence. And Berea helps us feel blissfully overwhelmed by God's presence, at least momentarily, such as in a moment of meditative prayer. So, we walk planet Earth, but at the same time, we can be firmly rooted in the bliss of spiritual loftiness. Okay, so we still have a very important concept to tackle today. And this is it. Uh, this is it. There are three worlds, Briya, Yetzirah, and Asiya, right, that we spoke about before. Now, uh, if we look inside ourselves, we have three methods of expression. In Kabbalah, these are called levushim, garments. If you have been taking our course uh, last year, you know about levushim, garments of a soul, and they are 
thought, speech, and action. Now, we all have our thoughts. Then we speak, like I'm doing right now, and then we act. The Kabbalah is teaching us that these three expressions of ourselves are corresponding to Beriah, Yetzirah, and Asiyah, to these three worlds. Why? You will ask me, well, thought, one second, you just said that there are three expressions of myself. Is a thought expre an expression? Yes, it is a form of, it's a form of me, myself, expressing to myself. Very often, I can have an emotion that I cannot, or I have a, an idea that I cannot formulate in my own thought to myself. I'm lacking this expression to myself. So a thought is the first step of expression. Then speech. And then action. Now, you all understand that these three levels, each one is more removed from me than the previous one, and therefore more independent of me. My thought is in my head, and unless I will tell you what my thoughts are, you'll never figure it out. And probably it's better this way. Uh, so my thoughts are just within me. My words leave me, but they exist only as long as I say them. The second I, I seized my speech, my words are no, there, no longer there. My actions, whatever I do, stays. And my thoughts express me more than my words. My words express me more than my actions. My actions are the least descriptive of me. This is why if I see something being created, being made by someone, it is less of a resemblance than if I see somebody speaking. Whenever I hear somebody speaking, usually if I know the person, I can, I can tell you who this is. If I see an object being made, I chances are cannot tell who made it. So these are the three expressions. In other words, just like God has three worlds where he expresses himself outside of himself, so to say, we have three worlds of expression where we express ourselves outside of ourselves. Bria, Yitzir, Asiya, thought, speech, and action. Now, here it is. I want you, right now, think in I want you to right now think in your head the following thought. Two plus two equals five. Think it in your head. Yeah, you're thinking in your head. Right? Now I want you to think in your head. I love moldy tofu. Think about it. You, you thought about it, right? Now, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I love moldy tofu. Say it to your friend. Here you go. You said it. One second. Did any one of you have a real trouble telling your friend, I love moldy tofu? Now, one second. Did you have a bigger trouble thinking it or saying it? But what was harder? 
here you go. And now I want to ask you something else. You, it was hard for you to say, but you said it. You overpowered yourself. Now you prove that you have a great willpower. Yes. But now I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Can you make yourself actually like moldy tofu? Yeah. That's right. You, one second, but you said it. You said it. Why is it? This little silly exercise proves that our speech and even our thoughts, and for sure our actions, are removed from who we are. I am not my speech. I am not my thoughts. I can say I love moldy tofu all day. You know what? I don't like moldy tofu. Truth is, I, I, I never tried eating it. <laughs> but my, my hunch is I would not like it. Okay, so my speech, my thoughts, and my actions are not me. And this is the most important lesson for us to learn because these three worlds are not God. Just like these three worlds are not God, my speech, my thoughts, and my actions are not me. And this is important to know why. Because very often we define ourselves by our thoughts, our speech, and our action. And the Torah tells us it's not us. These are called in Hebrew, levushim clothing, because my clothes I can put on and I can take off. I'm wearing a suit now, I will be wearing pajamas in a few hours. It's the same me. Same me. Different clothes. So this is, this is one of the most empowering messages of Judaism. Very often people say, I, this is how I am. I have to say that. Uh, you know, legally you have freedom of speech. You know, people say, people, people say everybody, everybody has freedom of speech till they get married. You know, um, you know, uh, 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 when you come home to your husband or to your wife, that's when you lose your freedom of speech. Yes, you, but I have to say that. Uh, you know, you don't have to. You don't have to. Yeah, but this is what I always do. This is just me. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> that's not you. You don't have to obey your thoughts. Your thoughts have to obey you. You don't have to obey your words. Your words have to obey you and so on and so forth. Just like these three worlds are not God, you are not your thoughts, you are not your speech, and you are not your action. You are in control. Not they are. And these three worlds also teach us three various Stages of well, this is this is description of thought, speech, and action. If you want to jot it down, I'm just going to glance over it. Uh, and we spoke about it. You could read it to yourself if you want. Three responses: senses, uh, the soul's feelings, more. Uh, more forcefully, uh, thoughts are constantly churning within us, remain unknowable to others, speech doesn't run constantly, observable outward, 
outward expressions, no separation between words and a speaker, no tangible and action exists outside of us, physical and tangible. Okay. And now we see an interesting thing. Adam, three letters, Aleph, Dalad, and Mem, which in Aramaic is thought, speech, and action. Alefcha, Dibur, and Maaseh. Adam is a person. Adam was the first human. We are called Adam because we have these three expressions. And we know that there are different types of mitzvot. There are mitzvot that are, oops, there are mitzvot that are pertaining to only speech. When I need to cheer up my friend, I'm doing a big mitzvah, it's speech. There are mitzvot that, that pertain to actions. If my friend needs help, words won't do it. Or if I need to put on tefillin, just thinking or talking about tefillin will not help. I actually have to put it on. And then there are mitzvot that are pertaining to thought. When I'm learning Torah, I have to understand what I'm saying. I have to understand what I'm reading. This is a thought. And then there are mitzvot that are pertaining to all three or two out of three. So all of these three areas are always, are always utilized. But now I just want to tell you something else. Briya, these three, these three categories, thought, speech, and action, or briya, yetzira, and asiya, the, the three worlds that we, that we spoke about, also correspond, interestingly enough, to three stages of us accomplishing things. Do you remember we, we said about purchasing a house? So first, whenever we need to do something, first it all starts with the idea, with brainstorming, a thought. That's Bria. Then, I need to talk it over, or I need to share it with, something, with somebody. I need to express it. That's Yitzhara, and then I need to do it. The, the devil is in the details. I need to do every little thing. Now, there are people who are better in the world of Bria. There are people who are better in the world of Yitzhara. There are people who are better in the world of Asiya. There are different people. There are some people who have great ideas. But as... As people often say, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? You know, you have great ideas, but they can't implement any of them. But their ideas are really wonderful. There are some people who don't have good ideas so much, but if you will tell them something, they are very good at figuring out details. They are very good at communicating. And then there are people who are not so good at communicating, not so good at ideas, but when something needs to be done, they'll get it done. Most of the time, nobody is good at all three equally. Each one has its strength. So some people live in the world of Briya, some people live in the world of Yitzhara, some people live in the world of Asiya. And all of it is needed. All of it is important. And when you will analyze yourself, you will probably be able to see more of this, more of which world do you belong to. This concludes our class for today. Next, next week, we are going to be talking about our topic number two, 
which is the dawn of limitation. We spoke today about ego and about self-awareness, about self-expression, about who I am. Next class, we're going to be speaking about limitation, what is called in Hebrew tzim tzum. Now, as I mentioned to you before, I purposely omit all of the sources. We don't read from the actual books, but if you want, in your textbooks, there are textual uh, sources for everything what we discussed. And now I just want to show you a two-minute video that is bringing out the key points of today's class. Lesson one, the evolution of ego. One, the disposition of our internal character need not automatically dictate what occurs in the realm of our thought, speech, and action. We can control our levushim, irrespective of our personality. Two, our actions should be preceded by proper planning, thought, and consultation, speech. On the other hand, we must make certain to graduate from planning and discussion to engage in concrete action. Three, we can begin each day with a motivational exercise that is a built-in feature of Jewish practice. To first think about the Creator, then verbalize our gratitude toward Him, and then act by ritually preparing our hands. This brief early morning tour through Bia sets the appropriate tone for our entire day. So thank you very much. This concludes our first class. Um, and I will be happy to see you here next week. Same time, same place. Promise lighting is going to be better. And uh, if you haven't signed up yet, please do so. If you want a textbook, please do it now. So we'll have a week to get it. And you will be getting the recordings of each class uh, once you are signed up. Yeah.